This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in April of 2017. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Catherine O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill earned her bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley and received her PhD from Harvard in mathematics. She spent the early part of her career teaching at MIT in Barnard, but would eventually leave for the private sector. After a few years as a financial professional, she eventually became disillusioned with the industry and would eventually join the Occupy Wall Street movement. She is a regular contributor to Bloomberg and is the author of The Shea Machine, Doing Data Science, and Weapons of Math Destruction, which all explore the negative impacts data analytics and algorithms have on society. Personally, I think this talk could not have come at a more apt time. Together, we discussed how big data and the use of algorithms became more common in everyday life, how their use creates negative externalities with socioeconomic repercussions, and what caused her dislike of the finance industry. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. All right, uh, Kathy, talking about, essentially, you're warning the world against over-mathematizing procedures and models, and, uh, and uh, I'm relatively aware of uh, those implications, even though it's not my direct, uh, it's not my direct, uh, direct thing, but let's, uh, let's take it from the, from the very beginning. When I saw Ted Williams play baseball, you uh, immediately pointed out in your book that, in a heuristic fashion, uh, Lou Boudreau, who happened to be the manager of the Cleveland Indians, saw that Ted Williams, great hitter that he was, was always pulling the ball uh, to uh, right field. He was a left-handed hitter. And he was just constantly smacking and smacking. And he moved the field around and basically cut into uh, Ted's action because Ted was too arrogant to not challenge the shift. And so I guess in a way uh, it, it worked out because I think Lou Boudreau actually won a World Series in a pennant. I don't know what particular I think he won it in, won it, won it in 48. But you pointed out, out as, a, as a shift, as a, as a primitive model that has some efficacy. And then of course you went on to talk about what's going on today with the supercomputers and so forth, that the massive information can be used to do some good predictive modeling, perhaps uh, take baseball again, uh, Moneyball, where they've uh, mathematized every conceivable aspect of the game of baseball and they've discovered hidden value in statistics that the traditionalists had overlooked. And you opine that this is all pro probably a good thing and that all sports teams and, and uh, people are trying to build the efficiencies of their their, their uh, companies or their projects, 
this would not be a bad thing. But then you go from that to say, but there's something inherently uh, dangerous about this, that whether it's in the hands of people who don't know the implications of the math, who don't know the limitations of the math, that somehow some of these uh, modeling techniques are kind of spreading like topsy and being used for bad purposes. I think the, and I'll, and I'll stop, the, the, the one I found very uh, interesting was the Washington, D.C. Education Project, where they, had, they, where they had developed a system to predict the value of teachers, which went awry and kind of, kind of was discriminatory, and there was no real recourse or way to address the model once the model's momentum had taken off. So why don't you digress from, from Ted Williams, the good parts, to the bad modeling, and then we'll, we'll take it from projects of interest. We'll go to the financial uh, business, which you were in, and, and just let it go. I'll back up a little bit and talk about what I think goes into a model. And, you know, we, we talked in the examples, it'll be clear that this is true there too, which is the data and then the definition of success. Um, and those are the two most important things. So the data um, that, that was used for the baseball, for the shift for Ted Williams, was knowing where Ted Williams usually landed the ball when he had a hit. Um, and that was sort of all that information was being used. And then they said, wait, wait a second. We are missing, we're missing, um, we're, we're not getting to the ball quickly enough. So we have to actually shift the outfielders or the all the all the people on the field so that we cover more of the field than um, that is sort of tailored to Ted Williams. Um, okay, so that's the data. What's the definition of success? Well, for the opposing team against Ted Williams, the definition of success is like he doesn't get um, quite as far on the bases, or maybe he even gets out. Um, one of the things that's really beautiful about sports, and the reason that I think data works so well with sports, is that the definition of success is so clear. The definition of success is exactly that, just win the game, essentially. Win the game or like prevent someone from running the bases or something very, very close to keep them from scoring. Because too many scores on the other side will, uh, too many runs will like lose the game. That's, that kind of clarity is very rare, actually. It, it, they, that kind of clarity happens in some cases. Like it happens in chess when you want to win chess. It happens in checkers. You want to win checkers. It happens in finance when you want to make money, right? If you're doing an algorithm to trade, you want to make money. So the definition of success is often quite clear. What's really not clear when you move to the realm of teaching is what it means to be a successful teacher. Um, and that's one of the biggest problems we were having Um as our society sort of really started caring about the uh, teacher assessment, which is really a movement that started many, many presidents ago, the idea of solving the uh, the problem of bad teachers in our country and hopefully improving um, the achievement gap, the achievement gap being sort of the difference between poor kids and, and rich kids, their SAT scores and other kinds of standardized test scores. Um, and the idea was, well, we're going to get, we're going to find and get rid of bad teachers. Um, and the, again, the problem is it's not really clear what a bad teacher is. Um, but it was the sort of very short version of it was, well, the first generation, I should say, the first generation of teacher assessments was pretty stupid, <laughs> to be honest. It was, um, it defined bad teachers as teachers that, um, who had a bunch of students who did not score proficiently on yeah, a given why, why, would that, why wouldn't that be a good criterion? Right. Well, that sounds naively like a good criterion. The problem is that we have this very strong correlation, as I said, 
um, between wealth and standardized test scores. So when you punish teachers, who many of whose students don't get um, proficient grades in their standardized tests, you're basically punishing teachers of poor kids. So that first generation of teacher assessment, like finding the teachers by finding the teachers whose students aren't doing well, just unfairly targeted teachers of poor kids. And that was pretty obvious pretty quickly um, that they had to devise a better system. The problem was that the second version of this was statistically really very flawed. And that was called the growth model or the teacher value added model. And it's something I talk about in my book. Um, and basically what they tried to do is instead of um, measuring the teacher's ability to get the student to do well on the test, um, they did something a little bit more nuanced, which is they tried to measure the teacher's ability to get a student to do better than expected on a test. So that was considered their growth or their value added. So each student, to be clear, each student had a sort of expected score at the end of fourth grade, say, um, depending very, uh, depending largely on what they got at the end of third grade, for example. And that expected score had some kind of uncertainty attached to it, just as every statistical model has. And then, of course, their actual score also had uncertainty uh, attached to it because a given student might do better in the morning or the afternoon or might do worse if it's hot and they don't have air conditioning, all sorts of factors. And when you talk about and so the teachers were actually being assessed by the difference between those scores. So the, the teacher would get a sort of bump up if a given student in their class did better than expected. A, a teacher would get a bump down if a given student in their class did worse than expected. Um, but keep in mind, that means that they're taking the difference between the actual score and the expected score, each of which had some kind of uncertainty attached to it. Well, there would be a, there'd be a, a, a large sample of people so they could certainly get a central tendency that the score, that the test scores were actually measuring something as opposed to nothing. Well, you'd think so, but when you think about it, the test, the sample size wasn't too large, right? It's just one classroom. Okay. About 24 kids, maybe. Okay. That's just not very good if, you, if it's statistically uncertain enough, right? Mm -hmm. If it's noisy. Okay. And that's exactly what we found. Um, and there's not a lot, and to be clear, the teachers weren't told, by the way, there's error bars around these numbers. The teachers were told, here's your score. Yeah, yeah. If it's low, you're a bad teacher. If it's high, you're a good teacher. Um, they didn't understand the score. There was no way for them to appeal if they thought their score was too low or, or what have you. There was no way for them to get a real explanation on their scores because it's actually a little bit more complicated than I just said. I'm simplifying. Right. Um, and I think the worst part of it is that it was, in spite of its statistical flaws, and it really was quite flawed, um, and I can explain why I know that, um, because I tried to get access to the formula, but I was denied that access. And not only that, but I was told that no one in the school system that where these scores were being used had access to that, to real understanding of the formula. They were in spite of all of that being used for high stakes decisions. So I, um, interviewed Sarah Wasaki from the Washington DC area who actually got fired in large part because of her value back model. Now, basically, it was a regression model developed by some outside agency who sold a, and you never saw the statistics that proved that model in any way, correct? I mean, they ground some data, uh, they got the coefficients, uh, they, they put your stuff through it, and there was no, since you couldn't challenge the basics, basis of the model, you had to accept it as, uh, as a God-given uh, choice. So many teachers must have gotten mangled in that process. What was their recourse on, on that? 
So there was no recourse, essentially. So this one woman who got fired because of her bad score, um, she even had, it was even worse than it sounds, because she had reason to think, because in that system under Michelle Ree, who was the superintendent of schools at the time in D.C., she actually instituted carrots and sticks. So she gave us teachers with very good scores bonuses and very bad scores. She fired them. So that Sarah was fired along with 205 other teachers that year. But she had reason to think that some of her students actually had inflated um, scores coming into her fourth grade class. That some of her third, so some of the kids coming into her class from a specific school had had got, gotten really good standardized test scores at the end of third grade in English, but couldn't read or write. And then she found out that there were an unusual number of erasures on the tests of that school. So she had reason that it was never investigated fully because I think of politics, but basically she thinks that the teachers at that previous school actually cheated in order to either get a bonus or to avoid getting fired. Um, but she was left with kids coming in with inflated expected scores. So when she didn't meet those inflated expectations, she got downgraded because of that. It's the crazy system, but it, that's how it works. So anyway, the point is that she really had reason to think, reason to appeal her score, saying, hey, I think some of these kids' teachers cheated last year, and I think you should look into it. And guess what? They said, oh, no, it's fair. You have no nothing to complain about. I mean, if you take a step back, what we are talking about is like a teacher accountability system that doesn't hold itself accountable. You said yourself, they had no scientific evidence that their accountability system was scientific. There was no, it was somehow we were expected, we the teachers, the teaching system, the principals also were expected to take it on blind faith um, that this was statistically valid without giving any evidence for it. And that's the kind of thing that really bothers someone like me who cares about mathematics. Where did, being, that, where did that process end up in Washington? It would seem to be, it would have had to crash and burn just because of its uh, its unwieldy nature, and, yeah. it, and nobody could get a handle on it. What did happen there? So, so Michelle Ree was fired because uh -huh. um, she kept on doing crazy things like firing teachers in live television, stuff like that, firing principals, I should say. Um, and then a bunch of the schools that had claimed really good advancement of their standardized test scores went back, straight back to where they had been before. So there was plenty of evidence, if you look at it, from, from this perspective of now, there's that plenty of evidence that people were in, like artificially inflating their standardized test scores under her leadership. Well, that's, it seems to be endemic. Anytime you test teachers or put students and teachers under pressure in these systems, they find a way to intervene with that process. Has there ever been a successful test, testing regime that you know of introduced into a school system that actually measured anything? Right. I mean, and that gets to back to the, my original point, which is like if you have a well-defined concept of uh, what works, you know, like we had mm -hmm. with 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 baseball, we know it's good to get people on base if you want to score and it's good to score if you want to win. Like it's very, very clear um, what the objective is, what the definition of success is. With teaching, it's not. Right now, we don't really have a well-defined sort of precise and scientific definition for a good teacher. And the best thing we have, the best proxy, and it's not a very good proxy, is standardized test scores. And as you point out, as soon as you do something that's kind of not a good, it's just a kind of crappy proxy, then people can game that system. And that's exactly what we saw happening. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say, from your experience, it comes down to this. 
I can give you a strong correlation. The wealthier the family you come from, the better you're going to do in school. And that's almost an iron law, wouldn't you say? Not only is it true now, but it's been true for all the decades that it's been measured. It's been true for all the countries in which it's measured. The more unequal a society is, the more disparate, disparate um, averages as you'll see between rich and poor. Like just just take China for as one example. We always worry about the um, international competitiveness of standardized test scores in the U.S. versus China. But last year, instead of just having rich Chinese kids from Beijing take the test, they had other kids from the countryside take the test. And guess what? Their average went way down. And it's not, it's not because China is a terrible system. It's because this is just a fact of human nature that we don't really understand, but it's just a, an observed fact that rich, richer kids do much better on standardized tests. Now, having said that, I, it's important to point out that poor kids in this country have been doing much, much better over time at standardized tests. So it looks like if you're just looking at standardized tests as a proxy for for learning, which may, may be also a relatively weak proxy, but let's just take that, that, that poor kids are actually learning more over time. It's just that richer kids are learning more faster. So yes. the actual gap is increasing. Well, that brings me to a, to a, a, a major point in computerization and formularization of things. Would you say, based on your experience, that um, those who could master statistics and computerization and, and massaging data, whatever advantages they had in the beginning, they're going to compound in their favor as time goes on so that there'll be a, a bifurcation, <coughs> a bifurcation of results. And I'll use your without calling you to divulge details, but your hedge fund experience. I mean, this is essentially a group of very smart people who basically have laughed at the concept that the markets are efficient, found structural inefficiencies in these markets, basically because the institutions and the rules and, and uh, the methods that you have to access the system itself are basically, you know, uh, engineered to to, to favor the people who run the system, you guys simply would look at the inefficiencies and quickly trade them, trade against them until you eliminated them, and then immediately found other inefficiencies. How could ordinary people ever compete with that if they play that game? And of course, I think you intimate that for you, you found it kind of an appalling game because essentially uh, there's no such thing as an efficient market if you guys can pick the pick, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40% gains consistently year in and year out, where's the efficiency? And of course, what do you do? Do you dismantle these systems? These systems are not going to be dismantled by the users. They, they have a built-in edge and they will bifurcate society into winners and losers more and more. And I think you point that out with the for-profit colleges how they recruit students for uh, those schools. And they prey on weakness. So they, they systemize uh, advantages in identifying weakness and cull the money out of these people and essentially give them a worthless in, in, in education. And there's no mechanism uh, 
We need to stop that. Your comment, both on the, on the financial world and the world of drawing people into a system to take their money in a, in a very systematic and intelligent way. And there's no real recourse. There's no real way to prove that or advocate against using that kind of thing. And I think you, you rebelled against it. I mean, you just basically moved on. But your thoughts on that? I mean, you had yeah. to confront a very difficult philosophical issue here. I, I agree. And thanks for saying it that way. I think you said it well. Um, when I first w walked into the hedge fund, I had this very naive concept that I was going to help make the markets more efficient. Like I was going to provide a service for the world. Um, that is not what people actually do in hedge funds. That's what they say they do. Um, I think for the most part, you can characterize what happens at a hedge fund is you take advantage whenever possible because you're smart and you have inside information. Mm -hmm. And it's not that you don't ever make the markets more efficient. That might be a side effect sometimes, but it's certainly not the actual goal. For example, when there's you know, market making and there's a crisis, then all the, all the sort of automatic market makers flee because they don't want to, they don't want to lose money. Right. right? right, so right. There's, there's no sort of civic responsibility role whatsoever in that, in, in actuality. And I didn't like that. I didn't like the idea of sort of going after dumb money, which is what we talk about when we're in finance. Um, and I wanted to be proud of what I was doing um, as a sort of person in society that I wanted, I wanted to take sort of civic responsibility. And then I went into data science because I needed a job and I found the same thing to be true. So I was building, um, I was building technology in the tailored advertising space. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was choosing winners and losers, as you say, um, who gets this offer, who doesn't get that offer. And it was pretty small beans where I was working and, and travel, uh, which, like which, hotel advertisement are you going to see or are you going to see an advertisement that kind of thing wasn't wasn't a big deal but as you point out like it actually depends on the audience right if i'm if i'm working for expedia.com that's a different that's a different kind of effect i'm having on the world than if i'm working for a for-profit college which is very directly credit you know um very directly like doing predatory ads, tailoring predatory ads on people that are very vulnerable and making like very misleading offers. Um, some of the, um, some of the for-profit college, the Corinthian college, um, recruiting manual said that once you find these people, you find their pain point and you promise that the most painful thing about their life is going to go away once they sign up for these online courses. It's really, really misleading. And they've gotten, actually that was shut down by. Put out the business. Company. Yes. Yes. Um, but more generally speaking, what I found leaving finance, which was kind of known to be bad actors because the financial crisis had happened. Well, let, of me course. Just, let me just point out to you, because I happen to be doing some research uh, uh, in, in that area for, for another project. But uh, uh, essentially, uh, instead of an efficient market, uh, I think that uh, I, I was looking at a set of statistics that said that uh, if you were an average investor, you didn't have any help, and uh, you invested in a mutual fund over a long period of time, uh, 10 or 15 years, you could probably do uh, uh, maybe $100 better than a, than, than a T-bill. When in fact, uh, the financial industry's uh, mechanisms for extracting money would do five times better than that. that 
that they would extract fees and, and all kinds of ways to nick you and cut you, so that at the end of the day, a huge proportion of this money went to the financial establishment rather than the investors. And all legitimate on the face of it, a fee here, a fee there, withholding of information here. I mean, a, system, a systemic a grab of monumental proportions. I mean, I, I guess in the normal days of finance, finance would be two or three percent of GDP. Now it's something like eight or nine percent. That difference didn't help make the markets more efficient. What yeah. it did was exploit the vulnerability that if you're up against it, you have to invest for the future. You entrust your money to these people who who all operate the same way. They know your vulnerabilities. And the net effect is, if there's any regularity in the market, it's this, that you are systematically going to be shorn like a, like a lamb over a long period of time. That, those statistics are clear. And computerization and automation, which should cut costs, have been the mechanism used to basically play the market, skim the market against everybody. And I think your point would be, there doesn't seem to be any recourse for that. You, well, you left. It was your recourse, but think about it. Those hedge funds are still operating today the same old way. And better than that, when things collapsed, the government simply stepped in and buttressed the banks, put the QE, quantitative easing money in, buttressed the asset markets. It's business as usual, back to normal. No stopping it. So a couple of things. So first of all, I totally agree with the gist of what you've said. Um, if... And I, I really like your point that if the if the financial system were really making things more efficient, then the the financial system itself would have gotten smaller, but it's gotten much larger. So where's our efficiency? Um, I, I do want to point out that um, a bad thing and a good thing about hedge funds. The good thing about hedge funds is that they weren't bailed out by the by the um, government. So that's the only positive thing I can say about the about the hedge funds industry. That's good. Like they're not depending on government assistance. So that's good. They're going to be allowed to fail and they should be. The bad thing I want to mention is that I think you're underestimating the amount you're being shorn by those mutual funds. Um, because not only are there all those fees there and you're absolutely right about the fees and they're, they're very well hidden the fees, but they, you know, you can find out if you really look, there's also actually invisible things going on, right? So the hedge funds, when they go after dumb money, what they're doing is they're going after these enormous bets the mutual funds make, and they're making those bets more expensive for the mutual funds. That's never going to show up as a fee because it's not a fee. It's money that the mutual fund managers are losing by, by um, making their bets big, and they have to make big bets because they have so much money. All my, my point only is that it's, it's like there are the fees that are taken by the mutual fund managers, but then there's the fees that are taken by the hedge fund managers because they, they're predicting the mutual fund managers actions. And that was exactly the thing that bothered me the most that, you know, I'm, I'm basically picking off the, you know, teachers retirement funds when I'm doing my modeling. It's not something I wanted to be part of. Why would they systemically, uh, the teachers retirement funds are one of the best, Manage funds in the in the world. Actually, how would it be possible for a mutual fund to be picked off repeatedly, uh, other than just front running the fact that it's placing large orders? I mean, uh, mostly front running. It is mostly okay. front running. And the point is that as as soon as they have a 
predictable behavior, then it could be front run. That's all. I'm going to divert something and ask you for a speculation here from your math background and your statistics background and the fact that you're from Boston. (laughs) Uh, I'm always involved with this following argument that Bill Belichick is the greatest coach in football history because his record is so consistently better than everybody else's and he's practicing his craft in a world uh, where it's very competitive in the draft end that the better you do the worse you draft how is it possible for him to maintain his edge if he wasn't using some sort of computerized or systemized model to really evaluate and analyze the game? Or do you have any opinion on that whatsoever? His record is un, unparalleled compared to everybody else in the recent era. It's significantly better, significantly better. And he always seems to understand everything that's going on in the game. Do you think he's modeled football Uh, to the nth degree, or you have no opinion on that? I'm guessing that he's very, very intuitively good um, and that he has the incredible discipline in his locker room. Um, I also assume that he's using modeling whenever it's useful. Um, You know, I've thought a lot about modeling in ways that, you know, go beyond, um, you know, the money ball thing of how to trade. So money ball is essentially, usually when people talk about it, it's about how to trade. Um, so the question is, how do you use algorithms in during the game, for example? Like, you should be able to guess, because this is what people do, like, what kind of pitch you're going to get from the next, given the situation on the field and the score and what the pitches have been from this pitcher in the past. Like, is somebody using that algorithm? So has somebody developed that? Like, and if not, why? And similarly in football, I'm less, I, I'm less of a football fan than I am a baseball fan, but because there's so many different um, people involved i can never keep track of all the different positions but presumably every time there's a play that generates data um that is predictable over time now having said that bill belichick also does a bunch of tricky things um and invents new plays and keeps things very very um unpredictable for the opponent so that's of course what other other teams are trying to do as well so the question is like how much do you trust this kind of prediction and score? I'm guessing he's learned what to trust and what not to trust. Pick a model that uh, you're really dead against, model, a model in an area that you're really dead against, that's, that you think uh, maybe it's credit, uh, that really you think will have terrible consequences in the long term for society. Do you have such a, a model in mind? I think the most obvious candidate right now is the is Facebook algorithm. Okay. Um, Explain I, that. That's the one I'm worried about the most this week. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, and it's, it's really kind of hard to, to gather very firm evidence that um, Facebook is destroying democracy um, and civil discourse because, of course, it's private and Facebook doesn't allow people like me to come in and, and measure things and quantify the amount of damage it's, that's being done. But I think we've seen over the last year or so um, the, the way that um, people are being held in their echo chambers of, of friends that agree with them on issues and they become radicalized and there's like very little room for disagreement and it's difficult 
to find someone who will have a civil disagreement on Facebook and elsewhere, I think it's having real impact. And I don't think it's good for our the informed democracy, yeah. the informed citizenry we need for a functioning democracy. I think at this point, we have actually started to distrust um, even facts. And it's because we get these kinds of crazy, uh, both on the left and the right, um, crazy kinds of um, compromised um, facts and news articles that make us not only distrust um, the media, but distrust facts themselves. And I think that, um, I think Facebook has played a large role in that. I don't know exactly how to, how to influence Facebook because they're not legally responsible for the things that other people post on their platform. But I do think that there is a moral responsibility there they have to face up to. Why would they care? What their, uh, why would they care to influence their readers, uh, where or their, uh, their, their viewers or interactors? Why would they really care? Where's the money in it for them? Well, I mean, their money comes from political campaign micro-targeting. They made a, just a ton of money from both the Clinton campaign and the Trump campaign on digital advertising, um, and more generally from all kinds of advertising. But, you know, it's, it's interesting, like, on the one hand, they reject the notion that they have that much influence on people, but at the same time, they, they sort of directly market their advertising as something where you can influence people directly. You know, they, so in, when it comes to making money, um, they sort of play up how much, how important it is to be able to talk to people directly with your tailored message if you're a political campaign. Now, I think that in itself has implications for democracy, right? Because what we're talking about with, with these political campaigns is that they have dossiers on every single voter in the country. They've bought profiles from Axiom, which is the biggest data warehousing company in the uh, country. They have voting records on people. They have arrest records. They have consuming records, consumer profiles. And they have done test focus groups on people of each of, in every micro-targeting category to see how they respond to certain kinds of pitches, how persuadable they are on various topics and policies. And in other words, when it comes to some a given person like myself on Facebook, a political campaign will decide how likely I am to vote, whether I'm persuadable to vote for their candidate. And if they are, if they decide I am persuadable, they'll send me exactly the, the message that they want me to hear. And they have way more information about me than I ever have information about them. And it's going to get worse and not better in the coming, in the coming um, political cycles. I'm really worried about that kind of asymmetry of information along with just sort of the, 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 the degradation of real quality information, period, that we're finding in social media. Okay, so basically it comes down to the guys willing to spend the most advertising will parse the audience uh, better and deeper and ultimately get his or her way. Uh, so basically you're saying that this is a, a very precise magnifier of traits and, and, and you can dig them out and influence them much quicker than normal. And, uh, but the net effect of that would be what? I mean, eventually everybody will be doing it. It will be hammering everybody on, the, uh, on Facebook to the point where I would argue it will become uh, a neutral mess and that it may have efficacy in the beginning, but eventually they would overkill that system, overdetermine that system, and, and people would finally start to tune it out. Uh, what do you, what's your thoughts on that? Like they're doing the regular press now, that 
what you see in the trends you see, I'd agree. But you can overdo that trend to the point where it becomes berserk and absurd and, uh, and, and non-responsive. What do you think? Well, I would say that there's more to a democracy than having opposing views, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's more, that, more than just having seeing someone fight with someone else, right? Mm -hmm. We actually have to know whether the, the things that they're saying are true or not. So my concern isn't that people will hear messages from both sides and like get confused or tune them out, which might be well true. My concern is that they're going to actually lose sight of what's true and what's not true. So they won't understand whether, you know, if one candidate is calling for us to be very worried about a crime rate, which is actually at historic lows, and we don't ever get the information that the crime rate is actually at historic lows, then that's a problem. Okay. All right. Well... You've described Donald Trump, and uh, and uh, I don't think, uh, other than his own constituency, I think he's rallied the the contra constituency into a high level of resonance, who basically is just not buying anything of that type, that kind of information. So, I guess we'll 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 have to see it. That's actually kind of my point. My point is that. Yeah. You know, yes, it's true that we don't believe certain messages, right? But on the other hand, I think people are starting to lock, like lose faith in more than they should be losing faith I in. I see, okay. So you're saying the whole process is being undermined by this very process. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, Facebook right. wants to say it's giving us news, but it also wants to say it's giving us news completely tailored to us, which is different from the news tailored to someone else. So is it... Truth or is it not truth? And if we if we don't think it's truth, then what can we believe? And I feel like we don't. We need some grounding, okay, um, in 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 truth. And that's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now as a society. Right. Do you feel that Google, uh, who's the, who's basically the competitor of Facebook, both of them, has the same characteristics, or somehow travels a little different path that one no, you, that one you can differentiate? I think it's exactly the same problem. I see. Um, you're you're finding um, absolutely false news sites showing up in, in very high-ranked Google searches, mm -hmm. um, like Holocaust-denying websites, yes, all sorts okay. of things. And you know, by their own admission, they are using Google advertising to influence um, people that they suspect will be supportive of ISIS. Now, I, I'm not complaining that they're doing that. They're trying to influence potential ISIS supporters to be against ISIS. I like that idea. But the point is that they are influencing um, people on Google through the, the use of ads, and they're even explaining how to do that, which is to say other people can start doing that as long as they pay Google for the advertising space um, in order to specifically manipulate people's beliefs. And that is a scary idea. Okay. Well, if we jump one, one step further, the result of the computerization to date, part of the result is you already have a horrible distribution of wealth and income in the country. And a lot of it is, is because of uh, access to monopoly, finance is a good example, where, where things are being manipulated so that money's flowed into relatively few hands already. And basically you have this asymmetric distribution of wealth already with no obvious means to counter it. And these people will continue to use the best algorithms to flush the money their way. Any ideas on how to intervene and stop that? The answer is I don't really have a um, 
like a, a list of things that we need to check off to do um, in order to prevent this. This is a real problem, as you point out. Um, these algorithms, and we only got to a few of them, right. but they, they're everywhere. They're at our workplaces. They're deciding what, what college we get to go to. We're deciding how long we stay in prison if we get arrested, um, where police should be sent, how much we should pay for insurance. You know, All those things add up. There's a cumulative effect. It funnels losers into the losers categories. It funnels other people into the winners categories. It exacerbates our current inequalities. Um, so we are going to be continuously bifurcated, as you say, into even richer and even poorer groups of um, in our society. And in, unless we really take a very firm stand on how we use algorithms and what kinds of standards we have for their fairness and their legalities, I don't think this is going to change. Okay. So you're looking for institutional change in the, in the use of weapons of math, math destruction. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, now, Kathy. Go ahead. There are civil rights error regulations around fairness um, in credit decisions and hiring decisions that are currently not being enforced when algorithms are replacing human processes. So that would be a first step is enforce the laws that exist. Mm -hmm. And then we can start thinking about how to address it on a larger scale. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening. And we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.